The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church and is part of our series in the Psalms. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. Good morning, church. Let me just start off and say happy Father's Day to the dads out there. Um, if we could, let me just take a quick minute and just pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for the, the blessing of children that you have given to us as fathers, Lord, which gives us the opportunity to celebrate today. Lord, I pray that you would use us to point our children, Father, to you. Lord, thank you that you have brought others around us, Lord, as fathers to help us to um, point our children to you, Lord. Lord, I pray that as this holiday happens, Lord, there wouldn't be a time of, of solemn, Lord, or a time of depression, but a time to focus upon you. Lord, I pray that we as fathers are pointing to the true and to the better father. I pray, Lord, that our failures and our disappointments would be an opportunity to show how much better of a father you are. Lord, we also pray that you would use our text this morning. Lord, I pray that the gospel would go forth I pray that Christ would be exalted, Father, through our singing, through the reading, and through the preaching of your word. Father, we understand this is a supernatural event, Father. Lord, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to, to fall upon us. And that it, through the Holy Spirit, Father, that the text would be illuminated to us. Lord, thank you for the cross. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn them to Psalm chapter 32. You will need them this morning, just as you need your Bible every single morning, uh, and every time we gather as the church. Uh, if you do not have a Bible, we do have some that we would love to give to you. We have some hardbound black ones all the way in the very back. Feel free, if you want to right now, you can go grab one. Uh, if you don't want to get up, simply look back that way and kind of raise your hand. I'm sure somebody would be more than happy to go and grab one for you and, and deliver it to you. As I said earlier, we're in Psalm chapter uh, 32 today. Uh, if this is your first time with us, or your, maybe your first time with us in a while, uh, we are taking a break right now. Our typical uh, procedures of what we do as far as what we are preaching is we typically walk through a book of the Bible. This year, we've been in the book of 1 Corinthians for quite a while, and this summer, we're taking a small break from 1 Corinthians, and we're beginning here with Psalms. So something we've done uh, throughout the history of our church, this is our third time now, is to take the psalms in the summer. And so each week we look at a different psalm and we say pretty much what God has spoken to us. Psalm chapter 32 is where we're at today. Uh, our society is a society that loves a good cover-up story. If you were to browse the internet today, you could find thousands of thousands upon thousands of conspiracy stories which are someone has covered up or someone has has taken the events and twisted them and turned them. This past week, in fact, if you watched any type of national or even local news, the trials have continued into the probing questions regarding our current administration and their dealings with Russia. What they're trying to find out is if these events occurred, who is responsible for these events and what have they done to try and cover them? I'm not gonna get into the political aspect of this, but you can find people on both sides that see something has occurred and they see someone has taken the initiative to cover up what actually has occurred. 
If we just think back to this last year's political season, it seems that a story of a cover-up was the main story. In fact, it seems for every major event in our history now, there seems to be a cover-up story, a conspiracy theory that goes with it. It began September 11th, 2001. People continually make conspiracy theories of cover-ups. The disappearance of Malaysia Airlines 370 in 2014. Once again, you hear of the many cover-ups. And even if we go back to the Watergate scandal of the 70s, our society loves a good cover-up story almost as much as we love a good blockbuster. The action of a cover-up is not something that's unique to our current modern age, though. It goes back hundreds upon thousands of years. In fact, it goes all the way back to the beginning. It goes all the way back to the garden. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we have the creation story, and it was good. In Genesis chapter 3, things begin to unravel. Let me read for you. Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 through 13. It's probably familiar to you, but let me just read it. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who ate, or who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God, God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. From the beginning of time, we have a, a physical and spiritual cover-up happening here. Everything's going well. God was with his people, and then sin occurs. At that point, Adam and Eve had to decide, what do we do? And they choose to do a cover-up. They first cover their physical bodies, and they then try to hide and to pass the blame. They knew that they were naked and that they had done wrong. And their response was, let's try and fix this. Surely some fig leaves are all that we will need. If we can only grab some fig leaves and cover up our nakedness, everything will be back to the way that it was. It sounds so absurd, yet we do the same thing. Their nakedness here is a representation of many things. They were physically naked. But it goes much deeper than that. They were also spiritually naked. When you stand naked, there is nothing to hide behind. Every flaw and imperfection is on display. Here, let me show you what I mean. Just kidding. Calm down. It's okay. 
The problem, though, isn't our nakedness. We are all naked. We choose every day to cover our nakedness. We all have to decide who will cover our nakedness. This is the decision that matters. A cover-up needs to occur. The question, though, is who is going to do the cover-up? Read with me, if you will, the first two verses of Psalm chapter 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Do you see the cover up here? David here chooses to use four different words to describe the nakedness that needs to be covered. Transgression, sin, iniquity, and you could even say deceit. What is this nakedness that he is referring to? What needs to be covered? It once again goes right back to the garden into Genesis chapter 3. There's a divide between God and man. It entered into the world in Genesis chapter 3, but it still remains. There's been placed a divide between God and man, and this is our sin. The psalmist here chooses to describe this great chasm with four different words. These four words portray the different aspects or the greatness, if you will, of the chasm. He describes the sin using these four different words to show how all-encompassing it is. The chasm is deep and it is wide. It is tall and it is long. There is no way across it. There is no jump great enough to traverse its breadth, yet we try. We often try, times try to cross this chasm of sin ourselves. We begin the cover-up. We try to jump. Even when we don't make it, we think if we just tried a little harder, maybe next time we can. We try and we cover up the size of the chasm. We do this by comparison. At least my canyon isn't as deep. At least my canyon isn't as wide. At least mine isn't as rocky. The cover-up here is in full force. We've begun down the same path as the first couple in the garden. Adam and Eve so, seem so distant in time, yet so close in action. Within these first two verses, though, we see the cover-up. The psalmist chooses once again to use multiple words to describe the cover-up. Forgiven. Covered. Not counted. God has chosen to make a way. If we look back once again in Genesis chapter 3, we see God makes the first steps of cover-up. He does this in verse 21. Genesis 3.21 says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Death has now entered into the garden, and death has occurred for the sake of man. Adam and Eve's nakedness is now covered by the blood of an animal. God has draped the animal's flesh upon the shoulders and the nakedness of Adam and Eve. They've recognized their sin, and he has provided a better substitute than the fig leaves in which they chose to clothe themselves. In Psalm chapter 32, the same is true. The covering of sin today has been done in the same manner as it was in the garden. Upon our shoulders has been draped a worthy sacrifice, which God has chosen to cover our nakedness with and to cover our sin and our shame. 
The sacrifice, though, is much different than the one that we see in Genesis chapter 3. The sacrifice which covers us today is the true and great lamb. It is the savior of the world. It is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. It is the one who cares for us. It is the one who is like us in so many ways. It is the one that we now set our lives after. It is God's only son. God sent him as a payment for our nakedness. He is the cover-up we do not deserve, but is the one that we desperately need. Through his sacrificial death, our transgression is forgiven. Our sin is covered. And the Lord counts no iniquity. Praise be to God. Martin Luther says this. Sin has but two places where it may be. Either... It may be with you so that it lies upon your neck or upon Christ, the Lamb of God. If now it lies upon your neck, you are lost. If, however, it lies upon Christ, you are free and will be saved. This is our starting ground. The rest of the psalm rests upon these two verses. Even greater than that, though, is our lives. Our lives rest upon the truth found in these two verses. These two verses are the reason that we are gathering here this morning. It is the reason that our lives shouldn't make sense to an outside world. And I want to pause and acknowledge that there might be some in here that might not have heard the truth of the gospel. The news that God has made a covering for sin through the death of Christ is the good news of the gospel. It is the best news. I want to stop and I want to pray for you. I want to invite you to grab me after. I would love to continue talking with you about Christ as our covering and how God has chosen to place the covering of sin upon our unworthy shoulders. If you would, just bow your heads with me and pray. King of kings and Lord of lords, it's to you that we pledge ourselves today, Father. As we look at this text, we thank you for sending Christ to die in our place. Lord, we thank you for showing us our nakedness and providing a covering for our sin. This morning, Father, we place our faith and our trust in the perfect work of Christ upon the cross. We understand, Lord, that it is our nature to try and break this large chasm of sin in our own strength but this morning, God, we are relying upon the work that your son has done on our behalf. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. I said earlier, this is the reason that we gather. We would love to talk with you more about this. The first two verses are the setting for the rest of this psalm. Let me give you some background to this psalm really fast. Most people believe that this psalm actually comes directly after Psalm chapter 51. Psalm 51 is when David confesses his sin before God. It's directly relating to and directly after what we see in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. This is where the prophet Nathan has come to David, and he presents him with this wonderful story of a man who has everything, and yet takes from the man who has nothing. And David, in, in the perfect way that he says, well, that man deserves death, and Nathan perfect way that he does, pretty much says, David, that is you. 
And out of this, we get the writing of Psalm chapter 51. I actually had the privilege to open God's word with you two years ago about this exact same time as we're going through the Psalms the very first time as a church and preach Psalm chapter 51. It's out there on the website if you want to go back and listen to it. And out of this time of confession we see in Psalm chapter 51, we then approach Psalm 32. Having an understanding of a man who has just confessed sin is helpful when understanding and looking at Psalm chapter 32. We've already looked at verses 1 and 2, so let's continue here. Read with me verses 3 through 5. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, though my groaning, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. We're presented here through verses 3 through 5 of two counter arguments. Verses 3 and 4 are negative, and you see the results. And verse 5 is positive. All three verses here, though, are confronting our actions to sin. Verses 3 and 4 deal with our inaction to sin and the outcome. And verse 5 deals with our action towards sin. What then is a proper reaction to our own sin? David presents us here with the negative first. He keeps silent. Out of this silence regarding his sin, there were physical and mental repercussions to this. He is becoming weak and feels the heavy hand of God upon him. His strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. If there ever was a biblical analogy that we as the people of San Antonio, Texas could understand, I think this might be it. He is done. The sun has zapped his strength. He seems to be experiencing some physical complications due to his lack of confessing his sin. I don't believe this is a one-to-one statement, but there is some truth within this regarding our own sin. When we have unconfessed sin within our lives, We won't always have physical consequences, but we definitely can. The counter here is presented in verse 5. When confronted with the sin, he chooses to acknowledge it. He did not cover up, but instead allows God to make the covering. He confesses his transgressions, and they are forgiven. Verse 5 could almost be the summary of Psalm chapter 51. You haven't looked at Psalm 51. It is a tremendous example of a heart that desires to confess sin to God. What then should our reaction to sin be? According to these three verses, it is to confess them to God. Confession is a term that we generally struggle with as a modern day church. And depending on your background, it might come with quite a bit of baggage. In this text, though, we see the positive results of approaching God directly with our sin. Verse 5 says that he did excuse me that he did not cover his iniquity. He's presenting himself in his naked state. He is showing his vulnerability. There is no shame or hiding. Every deed, every action and every thought is presented at the feet of Christ. This text is referring here to confessing sin between man and God. Other texts, though, mention confessing sin to one another. 
there's a great value of removing our masks and presenting our sin to a brother. It's through this we can strengthen ourselves and the body of Christ. And it is these individuals that have, it is not these individuals that have the power to forgive these sins. There's only one who is able to forgive and to atone for sin. It is my hope and desire that sin is actively confessed within our community groups. One of the big struggles we have today is the Western church is wearing a mask. We feel as if we need to present ourselves as sinless. Brothers and sisters, we are not sinless. In fact, we just had a time of confession a few minutes ago. We confessed our sins to God. Why do we do this? Well, it's a reminder that we are sinful beings in need of a savior. Praise be to God that he has made a way. The sooner we come to terms with our own sins and the sinfulness of our brothers, the better. I hope their community group is a place where we are battling against sin together. I hope it's a place where sin isn't accepted, but it is confronted. I hope that this is done and bathed in love. This verse here might bring up a question to your mind. What does an all-knowing God, why does an all-knowing God desire us to confess our sin? Doesn't he already know our sins? And even those that we will commit in the future, even the ones that we do not know about right now, is confession that is something that is done for our good? Is it for God's good? Or is it possibly a combination of both? To confess our sins to God means to agree with God concerning our sin. It once again aligns our hearts with his. We confess for our own good, but also so that we remember the consequence of sin and the redemptive work of Christ upon the cross. When confronted with our sin, our reactions matter. If we truly understand our own depravity and Christ's sacrifice, it should cause us to hate our sin and to run from it. We should constantly be turning from our sin and running to the Savior. This is the definition of repentance. It isn't about feeling less guilty about our actions, but it is about seeking after Christ. How can we run to the Savior? Our text shows us. Read verses 6 and 7 with me. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you. We should be running to God in prayer. The last part of that line is interesting as well. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. When is it that we should be offering prayer? When God may be found. This instantly causes me to ask a question of when is it that God cannot be found then? I believe this is a call to action now. Today is the day of salvation. Do not wait as we are not guaranteed the next breath. The only place where God cannot be found is in the depths of Sheol, in hell. It is here that God is not found. 
He is not found here because there is an eternal separation between God and man in this place. So when should we offer prayers to God? Right now. That will always be the answer. There is never a bad time to pray to God. Are you feeling a weight of conviction right now in this moment? Is God using the Holy Spirit to convict you, to bring things to light? Do not wait. Respond now. Feel free to simply bow your head and pray to God. You have my permission. You can ignore me for the rest of the time. This section continues with such encouragement. Not only do we see that our sins will be covered, but we will be covered by the protecting hand of God. When the great waters rush, they will not reach us. God preserves us from trouble. We're surrounded with shouts of deliverance. Does this sound familiar to you? It should. Psalm chapter one, what we just covered last week. It has a, a, a comparison in there between, between, between a tree planted by water and chaff. There is a comparison that is occurring within there. One of them is a rooted tree. The other is blown by the wind. One is firm and strong, ready for the rush of great waters. The other is not. Which are you today? What is it that causes us to be the firmly planted tree instead of the chaff? It is God himself. If God preserves us from trouble, though, I don't think this means as a Christian we won't ever have troubles from a worldly perspective. There's a reason that the tree is planted. It is planted because there will be waters. Hold fast. In fact, let me read for you James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, and then verse 12. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Do you hear the language in there? It isn't an if we face trials, but a when you face trials. We will face troubles. As believers, though, our circumstances have changed. I had a youth leader once tell me these words. Nobody can make you angry. You have to choose to get angry. It's a lesson that stuck with me since I was a freshman in high school. Nobody can make you angry. You have to choose to get angry. It's a tremendous lesson for me to have learned at a young age. It's, it's a lesson I feel like our society has failed to grasp. In the same way that nobody can make you angry, no troubles can come upon you unless you choose to see them as troubles. For some people, a hangnail is a trouble. For others, losing their arm is simply an inconvenience. Let me read to you an email I received last Wednesday. This email comes from within this room. One of our members sent it to a group of us. Uh, I have removed the names and I have removed the identifying pieces from it. 
I've asked permission for, for me to read this email. So don't be afraid. If you ever send me an email, it automatically won't be used as a sermon illustration. I will ask your permission first. I, I'm using this email not to elevate this person either, but to simply display the work of God in this individual's life as an example of troubles. He says this. My doctors gave me the results from the biopsy performed last week. The news was not good. The results show relatively aggressive cancer. The doctor suspects it is contained and is manageable through surgery and or radiation. Quite frankly, I wasn't expecting the results today and have not quite processed the information. We always appreciate your prayers and are completely comforted that this is God's plan for us. We do have one request for prayer and that this cancer will open the door to share Christ with our families. We hope my disease will open their hearts to listen to the gospel message and come to know our Lord. Thanks for the prayers. For most of us, this screams trouble. However, for this individual, it wasn't trouble. It was a small inconvenience. Maybe not even an inconvenience, but maybe even a convenience. They're excited for the opportunity. Meeting people that they wouldn't have otherwise come in contact with. What troubles are you currently allowing to be troubles within your life? You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Oh God, let that be our cry. We've seen the blessing of salvation in verses 1 and 2. The blessing of our acknowledgement of our sin in verses 3 to 5. The blessing of God's protection in verses 6 and 7. And now we see the blessing of God's instruction. Read with me verses 8 and 9. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. God instructs us and teaches us the way that we should go. He does this primarily through his word. Through the very book that we're using today, through ink on paper, by the power of the Holy Spirit, God has revealed himself to us. In this revelation, there are instructions and there are teachings. In this chapter, there are instructions and there are teachings. How do we respond, though? Justin mentioned to us last week, that we should delight in the law of the Lord. Psalm 119 verse 103 says that the word of God is sweeter than honey on our lips. That is one reaction. We see the other reaction in verse 9. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. There are times when the word of God is like a bit and a bridle in the mouth. It is painful. It is placed upon our backs and must continually direct us to the path. A bit and bridle is a tool used by the rider of the horse or mule to be able to control it. Have you ever been on a horse? They aren't small ponies. They are large beasts of tremendous power. Without controlling this power, though, there can be quite a bit of danger. The bit and the bridle is placed upon the animal as a tool of instruction. I had the opportunity to grow up into, in rural Missouri. 
Uh, I grew up in a town of about 2,000 people. Um, I was constantly around livestock and constantly um, around farms. One of the interesting things about horses, though, is that they grow to learn their rider. If you've seen a horse that knows its job really well and that knows its rider really well, it's almost as if the rider and the horse are one. The rider can make a simple move, a simple adjustment, or even a simple noise, and the horse will respond. The bit and the bridle are no longer needed. This is a tremendous picture of what our desire should be. I hope to be like a horse that knows God in such a way that he and I are one. This isn't always the case, though. Prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. We, at times, are like horses and mules, which continually are in need of correction. Hopefully, as we grow in Christ, there are more days of honey and less days of bits. Our text concludes here with the blessing of God's joy in verses 10 and 11. Read with me. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. And shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Once again, presented with a positive and a negative aspect. The wicked has many sorrows, but the one who trusts in the Lord is surrounded with steadfast love. The Psalms begin, the Psalm begins by describing the blessed man, and it ends with a call to action from the blessed man. Verse 11 shows our response to the magnificent work of Christ upon the cross. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice. O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. I hope that we all are daily celebrating, as verse 11 shows. Be glad, rejoice, and shout for joy. God has made a way. There is a covering for sin. The biggest cover-up in history has occurred. To look at this text, we're required to ask one large question. Who has covered your sin? And who continues to cover your sin? The answer to both of these questions must be Christ alone. If there's any response other than Christ, then I ask you to search your heart today. Our desire will continually be to replace Christ. We are like a mule that requires a bit. Verses 1 and 2 again. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. At the end of each one of these sections, there's a word commonly found in the Psalms. I've skipped over it so far in the text, and some of you might have been wondering, why are we continuing to skip that word? But I want to point it out now. It's the simple phrase of Selah. This is simply meant as a break. It's designed to be a visual reminder to us as we read the text. Our desire is not just to hear these words, but to meditate on them. The psalmist has chosen important aspects, important stops within this to say, Pause, meditate on that. 
our goal is to think through how these verses directly apply to us as individuals. As we come to a close this morning, let us meditate on the word of the Lord. I would love if everyone would bow their head right now and we have a time of personal response. After a bit of time, I'll end our time by reading scripture over us. As your heads remained bowed, let me read Psalm chapter 103 over us. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his way to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassions to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Father, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you, Lord, that you have made a way for us. Father, please forgive us as we try to jump the chasm of sin ourselves. Father, I pray that we would be a people who rest upon the work of Christ Father, I thank you for the man of David. Father, I thank you for his great sin, Father. And yet you have still made a way for him. Father, I thank you, Lord, that your grace is sufficient to cover all. Lord, I pray for us as the people of Stone Oak Bible, Lord, that we would be a people who is continually resting upon your grace and upon your mercy. We'd be a people who are continually changed to look more like your son. Father, we bless the Lord this morning. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.